0: Greetings and peace be upon you. The following is a conversation with Thomas Buchstrom, who is leading the Social and Health Impact Center at Rice, and it was an honor for me to be able to speak with him. Could you describe your work?
1: Yes. uh, So I work uh, with leading a a small center at Rice called uh, the Social and Health Impact Center, Uh, and our our mission is to support the public sector and and uh, civil society in finding new ways of uh, of working with the preventative and uh, promoted promotive uh, interventions uh, to support uh, well-being and 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 uh, in improved welfare services in general uh, for, for people so uh, we are trying to bridge uh, organizational silos in both in terms of organization but also in terms of financing uh, and we're also finding new ways of uh, Measuring uh, impacts and and understanding needs and defining needs uh, for different target populations. Uh, so and if we just describe ourselves in our in a very short uh, sentence, we, we used to say that we work with uh, implementation strategies, finding better implementation strategies to make knowledge uh, come to use uh, in in a better way. Uh, and 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 to do that, we need to work in all these different aspects, both with financial models and. And interventions and other kinds of uh, implement, uh, aspects of implementation. So it's quite a broad, <laughs> broad scope that we have. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and, the, and my background is that I used to work with uh, an organization called the Swedish Association uh, for Local uh, Authorities and Regions, uh, and I worked there for almost ten years, finding different ways to support local government in in, in bridging uh, bridging different gaps in in terms of uh, prevention and early intervention. And we are basically building our center our work uh, on these uh, experiences that we made during my my time and my college times at, at the at this previous organization so so this is a, you can say that this is a continuation of of works that I've been doing around social investment and
0: mm. uh,
1: in in uh, yeah about ten years
0: right so I read somewhere that your previous work was very centered centered around mental health so what 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 would you say is the difference between your previous work uh, at uh, SQL and your work now at Rice. Uh,
1: yeah, that's true. It was uh, focused on mental health, but the thing is with mental health and, and well-being is that it's this it connects to almost every aspect of welfare services. So it is uh, very connected to, for instance, education, educational outcomes, uh, also employment, uh, and and in general how we how uh, society supports uh, people which in in a specific time in their in their life course have have a need for support uh, in some ex- uh, in some way so uh, so we, we took a very broad scope of, of mental health uh, I guess the difference now at RISE is that we uh, our mandate is even broader you can say so we are for instance we're working a bit with connecting uh, physical and social investments uh, and, and uh, tr- trying to see how we can bridge those different uh, traditions. For instance, when you work with city planning and sustainable city planning, which is a very, uh, which is a very uh, popular subject uh, nowadays. And uh, so, yeah. So I guess we we have a, a, maybe an even broader scope at Rice, but you know, I, mostly I would say that we have we are wor- working quite similarly to what we did uh, at at Salar.
0: Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that different factors are interlinked, that many factors are interlinked with well-being. So how do you think that ethics and well-being are interlinked?
1: Well, uh, and of course, I, I'm not a psychologist, but as I understand and I have colleagues who works in this field. So I, I guess I have some, some idea at least, and also from my own, uh, my own experience. So as I understand our recent uh, developments and in, when it comes to the science of human nature and, and, and psychology, uh, I think that we have some kind of convergence with uh, with some well-established philosophical concepts on ethics. Uh, and what I mean is that, for instance, uh, we now know, I, I would say we know that uh, previous ideas on human nature, for instance, social Darwinist ideas about survival of the fittest and so on, we now know that this is not an, an accurate uh, description of human nature and not, Definitely not a, dis- uh, a good theory on on how what makes people feel well. <laughs> so connected mm. to well-being, uh, but rather we know that people or the human nature is quite uh, what you say. It's uh, aligned towards uh, collaboration, towards supporting each other, and so on. Uh, and that we have a, a very large potential of uh, growing as as individuals, uh, but we have to grow. Uh, in line with society, societal growth, so it's quite difficult for individuals to grow just as individuals if if society is not uh, supportive of that. Uh, so, in that sense, I think uh, well-being, our, our increased understanding of well-being, uh, gives us larger opportunities to actually uh, realize those philosophical concepts of ethics that have been uh, established and developed over, yeah, for instance, over thousands of years, but not least over the over the centuries since we started to look at individual individuals, for instance, and concepts such as universal human rights and, and, and so on. So for me, that's, that's the connection uh, between ethics and well-being.
0: So yeah, a follow, follow-up question to that. Would you say that utilitarianism is, is, is the dominating normative ethical model at, uh, at for example, rice?
1: Uh, well I, i'm not sure i can tell for all of rice what is the dominant perspective but i would suspect that utilitarianism is not uh, at least not if you ask people i would i would, sug- I would uh, uh, suspect that people are aligning themselves maybe to a more uh, i mean a more uh, uh, like uh, respect every pe- every person's individual value not make these kind of utilitaristic uh, calculations if you say so Mm. but of course uh, if we look at policy and and societal uh, developments and so on of course there is a a strong component of utilitarianism as well so maybe we have some kind of combination between those two between those two uh, perspectives
0: right but when you're going to measure the the success of of an uh, of, of an intervention or a policy or anything do you have so I, I attended a talk I think by it was organized by uh, effective altruism and they uh, there was uh, a book that was discussed I think one of the authors was Toby Ord anyhow the 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 message of the book was that that organizations should establish um like a spreadsheet where they have where they gave, give different weights to different normative ethical models so for example they would give uh, weight one point, uh, 0.8 to utilitarianism, 0.1 to virtue ethics and so on. So they gave different weights to different normative ethical models and then with that they calculated how good uh, an intervention would be. Do you think that, uh, what do you think about that way of quantifying ethics, uh, the ethical implications of policy?
1: Well, I guess that's something you have to maybe think deep on, but uh... Spontaneously, I think it could be quite could be a good idea because I guess we oftentimes in our public debate find ourselves a bit trapped in, on the one hand, wanting to really only consider like the individual situation. So, for instance, in the Corona uh, debate, we, we of course we have a large focus on all these uh, persons, not least the elderly persons who have uh, uh, who have uh, actually died from from Corona disease, and at the same time we have this. Um, I guess uh, knowledge or realization that we also have to take some kind of utilitarianist uh, considerations. For instance, between uh, lockdowns and and so on, and and other societal uh, impacts of of uh, of only trying to minimize corona the coronavirus. So and sometimes I feel that it's very hard in in the debate to acknowledge both these perspectives and not 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 polarize the debate so mm. in that sense i think it could be good to just be very explicit that you have both these uh, for instance and maybe you have other ethical perspectives as well of course so to to try to make them explicit as a, as a good base for discussion rather than than have them implicit and and uh, trying to avoid maybe taking both these uh, into consideration so yeah mm. why not uh, Maybe it's not possible in all circumstances, in all interventions, but if it's possible, I think that that could be an idea, of course, yeah.
0: So when determining the weights of these different models, you would need, I don't know, some kind of a meta-ethical grounding as well. So you need to know, is there any, any variable that you can pinpoint and say that, okay, this we should maximize. We'll talk about this a bit more in depth later, but is there any current, currently, is there any variable that you have as a reference when it comes to these questions,
1: um, I, I think actually in my in my like daily work, uh, I don't find that I have a large like conflict between those two perspectives because we always have a like to some extent we have like a uh, we reduce complexity to some extent in in specific intervention contexts. So for instance. If we work in uh, finding a better way to support people, young people from uh, not entering uh, uh, like a career of uh, criminal uh, behavior or substance abuse, uh, we're usually working on a very individual level. Uh, and it's just uh, everything else is uh, given, if you say so. So it's uh, all things equal. What can we do with these resources to get the best possible outcome? And in that sense, I don't think we have to take this larger... Of course, we can always question: Should we do this or, or do something else instead? But it's rarely that we have to do that kind of uh, calculation or, or uh, de- have to determine, uh, determine how to, to act. So I guess it's a given that we should do something in this specific intervention area, and I guess that reduces some of the complexity of the decision situation that you're describing. I think with your with this example. So, so. um and 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 uh, I, I guess my my point is that it would be very difficult to set these these values uh, uh th- those depends i guess on on context and as well as your personal beliefs and societal societies beliefs as well but uh, one thing that uh, i i can i mean one observation is of course that uh it's quite often that i find that even though we know we have evidence for what are good uh, for instance interventions at least we have more evidence than we use in practice Uh, and one of i guess the reasons why we are not using that evidence may be that we have done some kind of utilitaristic calculation that on average people are are doing quite well in our society and maybe it's just a few groups who needs this uh, extra extra support extra Um, attention and one of the reasons why we haven't done that is that we have that we are actually implementing some kind of utilitaristic uh, perspective of uh, for instance boosting the middle class or something like that so maybe there is some underlying uh, utilitaristic uh, uh, assumption uh, actually allocating resources in our society at this point so (laughs) but that was more like a speculative uh, Mm. as you raise this issue
0: okay so let's dive deeper into strange ethical questions then okay so do you think that a child can be programmed into liking for example burning himself uh
1: well I, i'm not sure that programming is is um, is the is the best terminology but of course uh if you if you look at, at history and, and and human life in, in general you can be surprised i guess that uh, what what kind of rituals or, or uh, uh ceremonies and so on that people have endured over the ages and uh, that maybe is um, telling us that yeah people can do extreme things to in order to to uh, belong to a community or to feel like they are safe in in their community uh but on the other hand i would not assume that all people uh enjoy <laughs> for instance uh, hurting themselves even if they feel that this that's a that's a, a part of life and a way of life that they have been taught uh so um uh so uh, maybe not uh, i think you can maybe you can teach people to do a lot of things that can that can seem very extreme or or even uh, uh what you say um yeah, not not beneficial for for the person involved, but but I wouldn't say that they enjoy it for that reason. Uh, and uh, in general, if we just think about self harm, um, I I would say that we know that this is these are more signs of great distress and anxiety, even even though they are a strategy which can be um, uh, which can give people some momentary, momentary <laughs> relief uh, from from pain or, or suffering. So, uh, so I, I would be, yeah, I, I I would be a bit hesitant to say that a child can be programmed into liking mm-hmm. uh, that kind of uh, self
0: harm. Right. So, yeah, it seems to me that your yours from a utilitarian standpoint, at least, that you think that children's moral values aren't unlimitedly bendable but the central uh, the central um, the, uh, the theme in your work is well-being so uh, when like when defining well-being so you said that okay you can kind of get them to do something in different circumstances but they would not genuinely enjoy for example burning them- themselves so if you would measure well-being and A child would be burning uh, him or herself and that would you know seemingly enjoy it but then not genuinely enjoy it if you would estimate their well-being in your work would they be deemed as experiencing well-being or not i don't know if my question makes sense
1: well i think i understand what you're what you are seeking and maybe uh, because i i have been thinking about for instance when we talk about well-being and connected to well, health in general and we for instance we, we we all know that smoking is very harmful and and still people enjoy smoking to some extent so do that mean that society should prevent people from smoking uh even if their well-being is reduced uh is this a kind of similar like uh, thought that you are
0: yeah yeah exactly
1: yeah and uh yeah and i think that's actually uh, that is a, a very relevant question, and and for all of us who work in some extent with like some kind of social engineering, which is, which is what everyone, I guess, in the welfare sector is doing, I think we have to think about these uh, things. Uh, and uh, well, for me, of course, uh, agency is a very important concept here, so not forcing anyone to do something, but rather uh, provide some kind of uh, knowledge and insights and maybe uh, a room for agency. So... I guess in general, what social interventions is about is not forcing people and not manipulating people, but rather to provide them with some options and and hopefully also increase, as I said, the the room for agency. Because often what the analysis is that people find themselves in different circumstances which are not considered pro-social or beneficial for society and not beneficial for themselves and. In general, we don't think that uh, people choose to be uh, substance abusers or criminals or uh, not not uh, passing through school or, or, or things like that, but rather that they, they don't see the age, they don't find that they have the agency to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, choose their own situation. And mm-hmm. what we're doing with social intervention is to give that agency. And I guess that would be the same in, in this context. So if people are actually enjoying to burn themselves, of course, they should probably be able to do that <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but they should have the option to choose not to do that
0: mm-hmm. so you're trying to give people control of their situation right
1: i think that's a better and i think that's very important to think because of course it could be that we are forcing people to do and we don't want i guess this kind of totalitarian state where everyone is maximizing their health and uh, well-being in order to be these perfect projects of society and so on so i think this is a very important yeah. Uh, com- uh, aspect to, to have in consideration, yes.
0: Right. And then, you know, a p- potential problem could be, you know, m- m- manipulation of people. So if you try to, to increase their control, then, you know, <laughs> like it's going on right now with social media and, you know, advertisements and stuff. Yeah. So that we, we could delve deeper into that. But first, take this, uh, we, we we should maybe. Uh, it would be better to see how how you think that we should define health. So your your stance on that, and how you would describe the difference between defining something linguistic, linguistically versus defining something quantitatively. So before we talked about giving weights to different normative ethical models, and that you could just you could put that into a a computer, and you know that would be able to, to compute what you should do in in different situations. But of course, that has its limitations. And of course, human reasoning has its limitations. So yeah, what's your stance on this question? Hmm.
1: Uh, So first on the the, the definition of health, uh, I think uh, I would go for the WHO, World Health Organization, definition. And they say that health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So it's something more than just not being ill, if you say so. I think that's fits quite well with how I view this as well uh, and then. Well, the difference between uh, defining something linguistically and quantitatively. Um, well, I think um, uh, linguistics give, provides the opportunity or the ability for, for us humans to uh, understand something conceptually uh, and to well, visualize something, if you say so, and, and communicate, of course, around something that we may not be able to represent uh, quantitatively, uh, at least not uh, yet. <laughs> and uh, so I guess my general view would be that we have, with our language, we have uh, some understanding, uh, which we which we eventually will be able to also define quantitatively if we don't already know how to do that. Uh, but exactly how far we will reach uh, is maybe not uh, entirely known uh, and that's one of the I guess explore, explorations that we that the the social science field is exploring uh, but also together of course with uh, with uh, AI and so on uh, and but there are another uh, issue is that we maybe don't need to define everything uh, quantitatively uh, it's not s- certain that we will gain um, gain so much that we that it's that is worth the effort <laughs> to, to do right. and everything quantitatively but uh, but of course in general i think it's a good idea to try try to do that
0: mm-hmm. okay so this pertains to teaching a computer versus teaching the brain um and of course you don't have you you and no, no one has the time to see all the research and all the publications that are coming out but do you think broadly roughly that the world's focus on these two between these two is balanced mm. yeah and i
1: think that's a good question uh actually uh as you say i, I can't say that i have a, a perfect uh, picture of this but if we take if we talk about the hype i, I think it's quite evident that a lot of private investment at least and also a lot of effort goes into the uh, the, the computer teaching uh, part of uh, the scientific world uh, and uh, if we take early education or uh, uh, things like that uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be a similar hype around that area even though the knowledge has like uh, to my, uh, i think the knowledge around the importance of early education and uh, child development and so on is, has really exploded uh, over the last few uh, over the last decade maybe so uh, you could envision that, it, that there, there should be a similar uh, hype around that area but i i can't see that so in that sense, I think uh, maybe there is a bit of an unbalance and maybe. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, if we look at uh, public investment and uh, re- the, uh, the absolute amount of resources uh, being dedicated to the different areas, I would suspect that there is still <laughs> still more resources invested into into human education, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and of course I think that's a very <laughs> that's for the good, and and the, the, we know that there is of course a, a large gap in in providing opportunities for for young uh, for for new brains if we say so uh, that are uh, developing around the world so um on the other hand also uh, i don't think we should shift focus from teaching maybe computers but rather from other areas because i also think that these two fields are are potentially uh, benefiting each other if you say so so Mm -hmm. i i wouldn't want to put uh, uh like say that it's teaching a computer versus teaching the brain, I think we should look at them maybe as parts of the same kind of... Going. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Mm. So, um, But of course, you can be a bit frustrated uh, when we look at policy and every... All all people agree that early education and uh, providing the best opportunities for people to grow uh, from 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 birth, (laughs) Uh, everyone agrees on that. And then, if we look at practices, we can see that there are still so many gaps that we need to fill uh, to to live up to that. Uh, I mean, vision of getting uh, giving everyone that uh, every child that is born in the world, giving them the opportunities that uh, they deserve. So. Uh, Of course, in that sense, it can be a bit frustrating uh, compared to the hypes around our technological advances and so on.
0: Yeah, but let's say that you're leading a team in the social engineering sector and then you have to hire either only social anthropologists or uh, uh, computational social scientists. Um, Which one of those two would you choose which category?
1: Well, uh, if if you force me to choose between those, uh, I think I would. At this point, actually, I would go for the anthropologist because there's so much in the practical world that we need to work with. Uh, yeah, I can be a bit surprised. There and my team, I think, is a bit surprised about how how much effort we have to have to put into into the. I mean, very practical circumstances. How do you actually? Deliver a good intervention. How do you actually change people's behaviors or how do you make the desire to work in a different way compared to what you're used to do and so on. So in that sense, we need <laughs> the anthropologists uh, to work with that. And, and from my experience, the, the computational people are not as interested in this. I mean, human uh, interactions in that sense. So, so yeah, because of that, I think I would have to. Uh, answer like that but, but mm. as you may suspect i would prefer to to mix between these different uh, professions mm.
0: so okay so you, you mentioned that the practical imp- implementation is the hardest part or a very hard part at least so what, what, what are can you give some examples of the concepts that you that this question revolves around so behavioral econom- economists they often talk about like nudging and numbing and all of these Things is uh, are you using the same terminologies or are you looking at, looking at it in a different way?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, we are. I guess to some extent, uh, looking into the for for sure behavioral economics and, but maybe we're thinking on more levels than the typical nudging uh, okay. perspective would do. Because as I understand nudging, it's quite focused on the individual behavior and maybe the target group behavior, if you say so. But from our perspective, we are working at least as much with structural issues. For instance, at uh, for a local authority who are supposed to work to to implement a new intervention, or uh, or a collaboration between a local authority and uh, and a third sectorisation. Uh, and how do we how do we make them work together in an in an effective way? So, but if you use nudging on both a structural and organizational level and a, an individual level, then then yes, I guess we are doing some kind of uh, at least assessment of what what are the levers that we need to pull and and, and so on. But but maybe it's a broader uh, perspective and trying to think about all these different levels uh, of of an organization that need to work together in order to actually make a real change and. Persistent change, not only like a a nice project, but something that lives on after. After, for instance, we from Rice have been uh, have been working within with with the with the organization uh, and so on. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's. I guess this is quite telling about the practical difficulties that we have to take into account all these different uh, levels of an organization and different professions and politics and and and. public servants and then different professions and so on. So that's, I guess, is the complexity of of actually delivering uh, or promoting social interventions. Mm.
0: Right. So earlier we, we we touched on on computation and, you know, pertaining to that, we have math. So math is a language and uh, <laughs> languages are languages. And now you would, you know, many things that we consider just fields of education are just languages so are we always learning new languages or are we ever learning anything new and you know the follow-up question to that would be what does it mean to you to learn something new
1: yeah and i guess this is a also a deep question that i guess for me at least uh, i i think of language as something uh that we that we use to open up new worlds to some extent uh, both conceptual and, and empirical and uh and uh I for sure think that we are learning new things <laughs> as uh, both as a, like a species, species and as individuals. Uh, and uh, I think it's quite fascinating also that when you get new parts of language, like new terminology or new definitions and so on, you can quite often find that you that you get a better understanding of something that you're already quite familiar with. So I think that's a, a strong evidence <laughs> that language is very important that... It's not only for the unknown <laughs> it's language can also really help you with things that are quite well known but for you, but where you have maybe didn't have the right kind of terminology or concepts uh, in order to understand it as well as you do as you do when you get some new uh when you get some new language from from reading a paper or 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 discussing with a with a colleague with a different uh, educational background and so on so yeah um I guess this is what I think about when when thinking about this question mm. on, on on of language.
0: So you mentioned that you know it may not be very very worthwhile trying to quantitatively measure well-being. Um, so w- when it comes to well, sorry, but I I did I didn't
1: actually mean that. Mm. <laughs> I just said that not everything is necessarily uh, worthwhile to to define quantitatively. But I'm I'm mm. sure that. Many aspects of well-being is, uh, is something that we should definitely try to, to measure, and and we, I have some good hope that we will be able to do that as well. So, mm.
0: right. But so I mean, now we are speaking about languages. So, do you think that it would be worthwhile to try to to construct a device that would, you know, instead of so you know, natural language processing is quite quite trendy right now. Do you think that it would be, you know, good to you know, construct a a device that could like transfer emotions directly without any need for a language or, or such uh
1: yeah potentially um i guess that could be useful and i guess the purpose would be to for some kind of um, i guess uh, that the purpose would be to to raise some kind of uh awareness or, or interaction between different uh people or, or circumstances and, and of course uh, in some aspects i guess humans are maybe better at understanding uh, stimuli uh, which is not language which is not defined in that way so i guess that could be one reason to try to find uh, new ways of communicating uh, or signaling or, or describing uh, well-being um But, um, yeah, uh, I think we're also, at this point, we're actually, I guess, we're into some kind of very interesting work on actually just understanding well-being and finding good ways of defining it uh, uh, and and measure it as well. So I I have colleagues who are working with this, uh, what we call this, well the measurement uh, technology perspective on on categorically based measurements so uh it's like survey data and so on how how do we find good measurement quality in in service and and how do we how do we formulate the right kind of questions for people to actually understand if if we their well-being and and to make sure that we're actually measuring well-being so i guess that's where the focus is now uh, and and i think uh, i can see some quite promising uh, results coming from that uh, that work so uh, mm-hmm. but then of course there are, might be other ways as well to to, uh, as you said to to represent uh, people's well-being
0: so you're mentioning that your work is is going well even with surveys as a basis and i've heard before, uh, uh, I don't know if it's correct, but I've heard that surveys are very difficult to to conduct and that, you know, some people argue that we may need other tools. Um, but the, the problem is often that they aren't very legal, those tools, there are many problems. Um, and um, those tools are maybe implemented by intelligence agencies, but, you know, officially they're never implemented. So, but, but my question is, do you think that surveys are efficient enough or do you think that we should focus on you know developing some new tool
1: yeah well uh i guess in general we i think we should try different approaches because uh, uh, probably they would uh, like uh, be complementary to each other uh at least based on what we know uh, so far uh i yeah i think one of the interesting learnings for me as i started at rice is that uh before before that I, I think i was quite skeptical towards service in general and I, I wasn't really um aware that you could you could uh, use the right uh, yeah it's very hard to to know if we're actually measuring what we want to measure but uh, as i've been introduced to this field of psychometrics and uh, and a uh, measurement uh, uh uh, measurement techniques around service. I, I guess I'm much more optimistic that we can actually uh, find good ways uh, of uh, of working with service uh, because the, the psychometric uh, statistical models allow us to, for instance, uh, filter out what are like personal uh, variants and what is more connected to the to the object that we want to measure. For instance, uh, mental health or or uh, abilities to to perform some kind of task or or whatever it is that we want to, to measure so i'm more optimistic and i've seen some quite interesting uh, results from my from my team and from my colleagues so but of course uh, then there are other practical circumstances around service so how do you get people to actually answer service and and how do you find the most efficient uh, ways uh, of course with apps and so on we have some new kind of tools which are probably beneficial for that but but still i guess that's a question so well lead it to your comment i think of course there is also reasons to to try to find more like direct measurements and and maybe uh as i think you are <laughs> heading to more like maybe biomarkers and other kinds of of uh, inputs for for measurements so i don't think that these are like standing opposed to each other but at least at this point they are more like complementary uh approaches
0: hmm. Okay, so you mentioned that you have gotten good results from the surveys. So, to which extent? I don't know if you, uh, of course, your surveys aren't are not all compassing, and you know they don't measure the whole of Sweden, maybe, or maybe they do in some cases. But to which extent do you think that Swedes are experiencing well-being today?
1: Well, uh, I guess uh, <laughs> the data that I have seen suggests that, uh, uh, in general, Swedes are are. Uh, experiencing um, well, are, are, are quite good well-being. Uh, uh, a, a lot of people are, 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 a large proportion of the population are situated, if you say, on the on the upper half of of the of the spectrum uh, for this. The measurements that are out there at this point, point. Um, and that's also a problem from a measurement uh, point of view. Actually, that too many people are are going into the Threshold like the maximum <laughs> amount of well-being, so it's very hard to measure uh, variation in the in the upper uh, part of the distribution. So that's actually one sign of that our current measures are not good enough. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. So it seems like most people are, are are having quite high well-being, but of course there is a well, it's a very significant variation, and uh, there are. Of still, a large proportion of people who are not <laughs> who are not experiencing uh, great well-being, and and uh, I guess we suspect, and, and also for for I guess for for this discussion, it's quite useful to to think about two concepts of well-being. So, usually we talk about the like the hedonic uh, kind of well-being, which is more like enjoyment, pleasure. And those kind of uh, kinds of well-being and then we have like the eu well-being which is more about meaning and purpose mm-hmm. and uh, i if you if you think about society i guess uh, not least people might be struggling with meaning and purpose uh, that not every life situation and not every kind of uh, occupation and so on gives a lot of room for for feeling meaning and purpose uh, so I think that's one of the struggles in, in our society, also connected to social media and our ideas of how you should be able to live and expectations of life and so on. Uh, that uh, can be uh, a bit challenging, of course, uh, when it comes to, to meaning and purpose. Uh, when we look at enjoyment and pleasure, I think general, uh, the situation in Sweden and the and, uh, living standards and so on I guess provides for pe- that most people at least are able to to have fun, if we say so, uh, even though, of course, that also varies quite a bit with, with your social situation and so on, but, but still uh, uh, comparable to, to the rest of the, uh, to many other uh, countries and so on, I guess. Uh, the hedonic parts uh, are, are a bit easier maybe to fulfill mm-hmm. in, in, in Sweden.
0: Right. So you mentioned that there is some maximum threshold for the well-being uh, that you measure. Uh, how, how, where does that problem stem from?
1: Well, uh, it stems from how you how you ask questions in your service to some extent. So, mm-hmm. if you don't have a right kind of uh, what you can say is a, a diff- question difficulty, or how how difficult is it to to like fill out max max give give the highest uh, possible answer to a, to a specific statement in a survey, uh, then you might if if that's um, yeah if that difficulty of the questions are too low, then too many uh, respondents will will hit this um, upper threshold. So it's about design, actually survey design, and, and how you have analyzed uh, these psychometric uh, properties of of the survey. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that my colleagues are looking into how to find a, a better uh, a better measurement instrument that will actually be able to also uh, detect uh, variation and and uh, and uh, change for the for this uh, upper part of the distribution.
0: Right. Okay. So you mentioned that, like hedonically, Sweden is quite well off in terms of hedonic well-being, and maybe that is a consequence of that. Maybe that. Oh, would you say that there's co- some correlation between higher hedonic well-being and eudaimonic well-being? And are there any other consequences of well-being that you that you could mention? Mm.
1: Well, I, I I think I have to also say that I, I'm not <laughs> probably the, the best expert in this field, but I think the the in general uh, the, the the view is that both these concepts are are important. So it's not that you can only have your demonic well-being and and feel fulfilled. You need both, um, and uh, and uh, I guess they are connected in that sense that if you are. Um, well, I guess maybe you can connect it to some kind of flow or, or can, that kind of concept that it's probably easier to, it's like, could be like a positive circle where you, if you feel that you have a great meaning and purpose in your life, it's easier to enjoy small things in life, having a good meal or, or just meeting some friends. And then you feel the hedonic pleasure. And then it's easier to, to continue working with your purpose and these maybe more challenging things to, in your work life or, or, whatever it is. So yes, I'm sure they are connected. Uh, um, Other aspects. Well, that's a good question. Uh, For me, those two concepts are quite broad. So I I cannot uh, easily find a a third if you say (laughs) Hmm. category, but it's for sure they they could be
0: Uh, or you know, if okay, so. um, So okay so let's move on let's move on so should a model be accurate or efficient what's more important um would be right to tell oneself lies in order to become a better gear in the machinery that is the society so would it be in this case right to you know try to maybe artificially you know increase one's i don't know what artificially would mean in this context but you know without deserving it as it were you know increase one's hedonic well-being in order to increase one's eudaimonic well-being?
1: Yeah, um, starting with the first question, I I think models should ideally be both accurate and efficient. Uh, But of course, there is some kind of balancing that we are working with uh, most of the times. And uh, well, and finding that balance, I think, takes up quite some amount of work. Uh, so uh, and and efficiency for me at least maybe is my number one priority usually because there's so much we have to do and it's so easy to get stuck in in details of perfecting your model. Uh, I I don't generally think we should be telling ourselves lies, <laughs> uh, not even for the benefit of society. Uh, and I'm quite optimistic in that way that I think humans, in general at least, have uh, have a good capacity to both. Be very self-aware and self-reflecting uh and individual beings in that sense but still uh and not and actually more <laughs> as such they are also more capable of contributing to society in a, in a positive way so i i would find that approach much better uh, and actually i think that approach is also much more beneficial for society uh, even though we, we might not historically have <laughs> Always arranged our societies in that way.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that question also ties into, you know, we we touched upon how how you're dealing with moral uncertainty in the public sector, but that question also leads into how you're dealing with epistemic uncertainty, and this in turn ties into you know, uh, the you know empiricism versus versus rationality, because you mentioned that. Okay, so we can be very self-aware and very realistic, and at the same time. You know, we don't need to tell ourselves lies, but okay, how, how do you deal with the uncertainty when it comes to telling yourself the truth? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it's a really good question. I guess it's also, I guess, uh, quite often you, you suspect that people have a very different uh, acceptability, if, if you say so, about uncertainty. So it seems that for some, uncertainty is more uncomfortable than for others, <laughs> but uh, still, I think the best approach uh, is to, is to, to accept uncertainty and then work with it in a, as, uh, um, as uh, what do you say, as um, aware, to be as aware as possible around uncertainty and uh, how that affects different situations. Uh, how, how, how public sector deals with these issues well um i think it's quite hard to give a, a general answer but in general uh um, uncertainty in, in the public sector is more from the political realities and uh and uh, you know different priorities and um uh some issues around how you resource the allocation and so on <laughs> so i think it's uncertainty in the public sector is very connected to, to like political landscape um, uh, at the same time i mean i find that there's a very strong sense of uh, purpose and, uh, and uh, like meaningfulness that we have professions in, in the welfare sector for instance uh, teachers and the uh, medical professions and the uh, social s- social workers and so on, which are really, I mean, they have a kind of ethical code in their in their profession to really support uh, the clients that they work with, whether it's uh, children in education or or it's uh, social service clients or, or people in healthcare and so on. So uh, I think that's a, there there you find a very strong commitment and a very strong uh idea of what is the purpose of the of the work and of the uh why why the 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 reason that if you say so for 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 them who works in the sector um, uh, when it comes to measurements and and quantity defining uh, concepts quantitatively and so on uh i think that there has been quite a strong uh, well it's very different actually between the different professions so but if we take the educational and social sector first uh, uh, there has been a, i guess a tendency to to look more at uh, holistic concepts rather than being very precise and specific in in measurements and not going the like if you say the biological way but rather the cultural or uh, uh, environmental <laughs> uh, way in in describing why people uh, respond in different ways uh, whether in the medical professions of course we have a much stronger focus on on uh, well the medical and and the uh, and, uh, finding precise medications and and, uh, uh, and the medical interventions so actually that's one interesting aspect of, of the public sector that all these different perspectives are very evident and uh, they are not always uh, they are not always um, uh, what do you say Possible to, to bridge. <laughs> so, I think many of the issues that we're dealing with, when it comes also to these implementation problems that I've been that I talked about before, is actually to some extent connected to this to these different uh, approaches and perspectives uh, that are working side by side in in the public sector. So, <laughs> I don't know if this hmm. is, a, is a, if, 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 if if this answer is, is, is if you can follow me, but uh, but I think there, there is there are some interesting aspects here mm. Um, mm. and uh, but I hope that some parts of what we are doing is actually providing some kind of ways to deal with for instance the epistemic parts that well there are actually some things that we can know <laughs> that we can measure uh, but of course that doesn't mean that we know everything once and f- for all but rather that this is knowledge that is constantly evolving and, and uh, is getting more and more uh, well-established and maybe fine-tuned, if you say so. So I guess that's also connected to how we look at evidence in general in, in, this, uh, in this field.
0: Hmm. So you mentioned before that some people are more comfortable with uncertainty and some people are less. Uh, and my hypothesis is that yeah, science students and engineers are less uns- uh, comfortable with it. So they, we just dive into mathematics and try to just hide there. And maybe arts students are more comfortable with it. But anyhow, um, it's, I don't know, many people have thought that, you know, the less choices that you make, the easier life is for you. And that idea, the, those kinds of ideas appeal to, you know, a first year engineering student such as me, because that's, that makes thing, things more black and white. So you have one variable that you want to minimize. So, But um, h- how would you rank th- uh, the choices, uh, which, which choices that are more difficult for you and which are more easier for you in your job?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. In general, I think we have many difficult choices. But, but, I think what is easier for me is often uh, connected to, for instance, looking into, um, looking into, uh, uh, choosing like on on an intervention level or or an individual level. It's oftentimes easier to to address um, uh, for instance looking into the research and finding some kind of strategy on or idea of what is the most promising intervention in a specific area that's usually a bit easier what is very difficult is uh, as i was talking about before uh, strategic issues around how do we make organizations willing to implement new practices how do we make them collaborate how do we build um, momentum for changing or for investing in prevention? Uh, how do we how do we interact with the, the political level in a way that is fruitful for us and for them? I mean, how do we translate this very complex uh, situation or um, context to to a language that is uh, apprehensible and uh, and uh, uh yeah interesting for for the political level um those kind of issues is often my uh, i guess the most difficult for me and for 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 my work um uh, and i think also the most interesting (laughs) so uh, i think that's a big part of what makes me want to do my job is that it Mm -hmm. it connects all these different aspects uh, uh, of of, uh, yeah driving change or Improve uh, uh, welfare welfare services.
0: Mm-hmm. So it seems like you're interested in, in pretty much every <laughs> every field out there. But I, as far as I understood you, you've studied engineering physics for a few years at least. And um, uh, often I feel like it's hard for engineers. Um, so of my peers, from my peers and from others, I think it's hard for harder for us to get into public policy you know, because I, I spoke about this with my first guest, who's a law student, and we don't understand jargon and communication in the public se- sector uh, to the same extent as, for example, law students or business persons. So, um, and even at yeah, I watched a few videos about, uh, your work at Rice, and I feel like it was <laughs> too abstract for, for me to understand in a holistic way, at least. So what were the biggest hurdles for you? And what advice do you have for other engineers?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think you were touching upon that just before when you said about uh, uncertainty and so on. And I think you're right that, uh, and I, I, I of course, I have friends who are engineers, and I remember from discussions that uh, it, there's a strong drive to find a solution, the, the solution, and uh, just say why, why we just do it this way, and then we will solve everything. And it's very frustrating, of course, in in the public policy world where it doesn't really matter if you have a good solution. It's not no guarantee that anyone would, would want to do that or implement that solution because there are so many other incentives and and perspectives and professions and, and so on that will uh, intervene with, with this perfect solution. So uh, yes, for sure, you, I think you need to uh, embrace yourself in uncertainty. That's a good first step. Uh, and then, as you said, also uh, when we spoke about the lawyers and, uh, and so on, that there is some kind of terminology, uh, linguistic or Uh, barrier that you maybe also need to bridge Uh, so studying some political science or some history of ideas or or that that kind of subjects i think could be very helpful to to get uh, a good background uh, before you enter public policy Um, but um, also i think it's we need we need engineers so uh, i think i was very frustrated actually as you said, I, I, I switched from, from engineering physics to political science and European studies, and I was quite shocked about how different the teaching and uh, and the requirements on the academic performance and so on. It was like two different worlds uh, comparing engineering physics with, with social science. And uh, I think it's quite sad that, that there is not a stronger connection between the fields because uh i mean it's obvious we live in a very technological world and a socio technical world as is a popular uh, popular uh, concept today uh and i and we surely need need to bridge this and uh, i think engineers could do a lot of a lot be a lot of use because having this focus on problems and solving problems because i think uh, that's been something that i've been struggling with in in the public policy field that, that sometimes people are very content with just discussing problems and never come to the to the to the point of actually trying to solve any problems Mm -hmm. Uh, and for me that's unacceptable so uh, i think what i'm always striving for is to to reach some kind of operational level even though i'm I'm very happy to discuss concepts and abstractions uh, but at some point you have to come to the concrete work Uh, and if you don't you have failed to some extent so uh, so I think we need engineers for to remind us that we we cannot only discuss things we have to we have to work as well and try and you know trial and error I think is also part of the engineering uh, toolbox. Mm. So uh, and I think we need that in a much to a much greater extent in in, uh, in the public sector. Uh, mm. I don't know if I gave any <laughs> any concrete advice, but uh, the most basic one I guess is to to accept that engineering is very good, but you need some other subjects as well if you really have, want to have a good background. So, so some political science, some philosophy, some history of ideas is a very good way to, to broaden your your knowledge, I think, uh, and gives you a good start into this, this world.
0: Mm. So would you mind telling us some concrete uh, examples of the big differences that you saw when switching from engineering physics to political science?
1: Yeah, well, it's
0: uh,
1: <clears throat> many different things, but for sure, uh, the the just the uh, like expectations of uh, academic performance and uh, how how we are supposed to uh, to to uh, learn your subjects. In, I mean, uh, yeah. also of course, the resources seem to be much greater at the technical University, so you have much more uh, like uh, interactions with teachers and. Uh, and working much more in groups and doing you new know, experiments, and so both on the theoretical and and on the more practical level, you you, you just have more time <laughs> to explore concepts and to learn, uh, as compared to the social sciences where you maybe have just uh, ten hours a week with uh, with uh, a professor or uh, a teacher uh, introducing concepts, and then you're supposed to sit on your on your own and and read and study uh so that's a very strong uh a very uh i mean a, a great difference um and then as i said on the requirements so uh like the level of uh, performance that you have to show uh to to uh, to yeah, i mean to get grades and, and to just advance in the in the education Uh then of course if we look into statistics and and uh, subjects that are close uh, uh i found it quite disheartening <laughs> to to see the level of uh Knowledge when it comes to statistical training in in the social sciences, there was it was not very theoretically grounded, and uh, I don't think even all the teachers understand understood what they were actually teaching. Uh, so that was quite uh, that was a bit shocking as well. I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's our, our mm. some of the differences in concrete differences. Um, then, uh, but maybe on the other hand, uh, the the discussions and seminars and so on in the social sciences are more maybe uh, explorative and uh, at some points we you can have really advanced conceptual discussions Mm. maybe to an extent that i didn't see at the at the technical university so so Mm. if, if i should say something which is on the on the strong side for the social sciences i think it's it's about this conceptual and how we how we study ideas from from the ages and and how we try to make use of the ideas from from the old Greeks to to uh, <laughs> I mean over the centuries and how, how we how we try to make them relevant uh, into uh, in understanding today's world and so on so there mm. were some very positive experiences in the from the social sciences.
0: so a little another follow up question so when we are we try to derive new ideas in in engineering for example we the 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 cap or or the the thing that hinders us is the limit that limits us is you know mere like or what we we would like to think that it's mere computing power so it's our brains cannot compute this right now so okay i need to go and take and uh, drink a glass of water and maybe i'll come back and some computing power will be uh, will be um, built up and then maybe i'll understand this mathematical concept for example would you say that uh, it's the same with social sciences is is it the limited computing power or is it language or and terminology that you know that we talked about earlier
1: yeah um but to some extent i think it's computing power because you need to compile a lot of information information from different sources and and make sense of that But uh, on the other hand i think a more a larger problem is also that the theories in social sciences are are less relevant to the if you say experimental or the empirical world compared to, as least, at least from my understanding, many of the uh, concepts or in physics and, and mathematics. Uh, of course, there are many things that you cannot uh, work with experimentally, uh, even in, in in that field, but. Uh, if, you, if we look at the big models of explaining the universe or, or I mean, the large scale and, and small scales uh, of, of natural science, uh, I think physics have, and, uh, and uh, natural science have come much farther in, in having models that are more connected, maybe, to the fundamentals of, of reality, if you say so. If we believe that, of course, that's also open for discussion, but uh, I think social science has. Uh, uh, is not as developed theoretically in that sense but-
0: so at rice you've got a lot of interesting ongoing projects and being the naive engineering student that i am my favorite one was biocom lab because that you know the you know the potential of using biomarkers in in um, defining or you find a biomarker that correlates with at least um well-being so um, you know astaceanik and ericsson they have a they have a collaboration in, going on in China where I think the legal aspects are a bit easier, and they are trying to do something similar. Um, they have officially said that it's only for physical health, but I but I doubt that. So, uh, how you, useful do you think that tools such as you know, BioCom Labs, printed biosensors can be? Can we measure success in the public sector by defining well-being bioinformatically and linking biomarker data and behavioral data?
1: Yeah yeah i guess in in in, uh, in, a, in our science sci-fi future very uh, very well be possible to do that uh, um if you if you want to start at at this point i guess you would have to try to align with the most i mean the most recent knowledge on on the human mind and psychology and well-being and try to see uh if that's um, uh if that's uh uh yeah h- h- how that correlation would would um, be meaningful in in our to to help us understand in, in that sense uh, both the biomarker maybe that but, but also well being um uh, uh yeah and i guess you would meet some scepticism from from <laughs> from the field of of psychology and so on in in trying to do this uh and and I, I guess in general because our knowledge is not evolved enough yet, so we am, even though we are starting maybe to connect biomarkers with uh, like mental states and so on for sure. Uh, I guess we have not maybe come far enough uh, still to to be able to do this uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a good way. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I've, uh, as I understand it, we are we are going in that direction. So. So yeah, uh, it's maybe not as, as far flung as it it would have been just a, a few years ago. And then of mm. course there are the ethical and and other aspects of this kind of work. But uh, from a pure scientific perspective, I guess we are maybe approaching that mm. that way.
0: Would you say that the biggest challenges in implementing you know this concept would be? uh would we, be the mathsy side of things we pertain to that those or to you know the more artsy or legal or political side of things uh
1: well uh, probably both but uh, uh i i think one 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 uh, one very important aspect is that and i think we have been talking about this before here as well but there's not such a clear a uh, clear link from from decision-making at the institutional level down to individual interventions and, and uh, uh, individual impacts, if you say so. So the feedback loops and so on are not there. Uh, and that means that it, to some extent it doesn't matter how good data we get uh, because that doesn't mean that we will have, that would affect decision-making uh, to a large extent anyway because there are so many other circumstances that are uh that are taking into consideration uh so and that also means i guess to your question that a lot of cultural and and fi- and other organizational aspects are very important to make this uh, in, yeah in, in this in, to connected to this issue uh but then of course i suspect that there are also some kind of uh well, pure calculation and just understanding uh, causality and so on—that is also a, very, a real challenge uh, at this point. So, mm. yeah, probably that, uh, there would be different aspects, but both both these uh, would be are important to to have taken into
0: consideration. Right. Okay. So, keeping in mind your very successful switch from engineering physics to to political science. I'll um, introduce you to a, to a concrete example of uh, a naive engineer trying to to go into the field of public policy. And I'll take the same example that I brought up with uh, Anna Härland, who was a previous guest. So let's say that I am a PhD student from North Shopping, where the Biocom Lab uh, is working, and I have an idea to use uh, their technology of organic electronics for collecting maybe not only biomarker data but expose some data also and then link that with behavioral data in some way and for that to be used in institutional decision making with uh, keeping in mind the maybe maybe for a uh, to make it def- to tie that to the definition of well-being or maybe righteousness or any other other thing that could be useful how do you think that one should so of course we, we as we discussed earlier this concept in itself has a lot of flaws but how do you think that one should go about uh, competing with the other ideas uh, put forward by the more social science guys in the field?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess uh, the first thing is to, to have a really long-term, long-term view and long-term strategy in, in this. Just to accept that this is not something that you can do. You're thinking about it today, you can do it tomorrow. It's uh, it's a long-term work to in order to make this happen. Uh, and then I guess uh, start to, as I said uh, just before, uh, to align with the with the field of psychology and the, the latest developments in this. In, I mean, the intersection between the biological and and uh, uh, psychological research. I think that's a very good idea uh and just count on meeting resistance from from at least parts of this field uh, uh and to be viewed as a reductionist and so on <laughs> to just have some strategies for for uh, for uh engaging that that, ca- yeah. yeah exactly uh and uh, and then as i said as well to just work with to just have in mind that uh, the latest knowledge is not implemented at the policy level so uh, policy making is not up to date which means you have to have some kind of idea on how to speed up <laughs> the policy process uh if you want to do that and uh, and one way to do that might be of course to find a good uh way of um, i mean limiting the experiment or finding a good uh like pilot if you say so which would be which would not be uh which would not feel so uh challenging to the to the current environment or that would be a bit, that would feel safe safe for policymakers. uh and uh well to do that i guess you would need to uh, align with uh yeah maybe some legal experts and and the political scientists and someone who, who maybe would have an idea of how to do that but yeah for sure it would be <laughs> it would be challenging
0: what would you say would be the the most effective medium would it be the public sector or the corporate world or or academia.
1: Uh, uh well uh, probably academia actually in, in this kind of very um, ambitious uh mm. uh if you take this ambitious uh, way <laughs> mm. <laughs> because there at least you have the you, I mean you have the uh, the tools for these ethical considerations mm-hmm. and uh, and so on so there I guess that's the best infrastructure uh to support this kind of work uh, but then of course i know also that academia is very siloed between different uh, research disciplines and so on mm-hmm. and well, i guess that would be a challenge in this uh, in this particular uh, uh, in this particular example as well
0: mm-hmm. okay so lastly are there any other projects at rise that you would want to tell about that you're particularly excited about
1: um yeah, and I think that's the, one of the interesting things with Rice is that it's the diversity of the the areas that Rice is working on is is quite immense, and and uh, I'm probably not aware of most of the interesting things that are going on here at Rice. Uh, but I think, I mean, if we just look from a, from a societal, uh, from the societal aspect uh, i think rice does some very very important work on for instance uh, this uh, transformation to a more sustainable transportation system and uh, sustainable uh uh sustainable um, uh like the bioeconomy uh, field as well is very important and then we have talked a bit about the machine learning and and rice is quite uh, i guess advanced in this uh, linguistic uh, Processing, uh, as you as you mentioned before, as well. So I think Rice does some quite interesting things in that field, and I guess it's quite important also that uh, uh, an organization like Rice, which is not commercial, is is quite heavily involved in that. So uh, just for transparency and and to the general good. Uh, and then uh, something that is maybe more closer to what I do. We do some interesting work with the, what we call a governance innovation center. So. Combining a bit on the technological and uh, and regula- regulatory and, uh, as you say, political science aspects of how do we drive innovation in in governance, uh, I think because as, as Rice is quite unique in having all these different uh, competences and capacities, I think we are specifically suited to to working with that uh, to bridge these different uh, fields. Um, and then I think as I also talked a bit about the center that we have for categorically based measurements uh, with this psychometric uh, modeling and combining uh, very pure and i guess uh, very theoretical mathematical concepts on on measurement measurements with uh, with the very practical how how do we do a good survey uh, i think that's also a very interesting field that rice is uh, that rice is driving so these are a few concepts uh, a few examples of <laughs> what i think our interesting work that, that Rice is doing.
0: Right. Okay, so thank you very much for participating, Thomas. Thank you so much. very, very fun to have these discussions.